And now, hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, starting at verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are are last who will be first, and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings." and you are not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, my beloved, wonderful, beautiful people. Hope you're well today. Now, I call you all beloved people because, yes, I do really love all of you. But much more importantly, your identity as followers of Christ is that God our Father loves you. And so I want us to be constantly reminded that you're beloved, that you're loved people. I'm really excited this morning as we, this this mic sound a little off here right now. Let me move it up a little bit there. I'm really excited this morning as we got to pray for the Fry family. Where are they, Adam? So they're out here somewhere, right there. Our desire here at Waypoint Church is as we are bringing in interns and residents, and there are church planting residents here, that we want people to, to be a part of our church planting movement that helps Summit Network helped establish and start us off with, being a part of churches that plant churches. Churches that are passionate about not their own name, or not their own little body, but are willing to give and to send people away to be a part of a mission that's global, that's regional, that's, that's just bigger than what we think of. We want to be a part of a church plan because we believe the church is, the local church is God's plan and strategy of reaching the world. And so we want to be part of church plants. We want to support church plants. We're a church that loves planting other churches. Now, some people might think, why do you want to plant more rivals or, or competitors for your people? That is not the way we think here. The way we think here is, man, there's so many people who need a good body to be a part of. 
There are so many people in this community who need Bible-believing churches that are preaching the gospel and walking to advance the kingdom. And we want to see more of those. Our desire is to see the kingdom of God advance. That's it. That's our desire. Our mission statement says that we want to see the kingdom of God advance, and we believe that God does that through local churches. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we, that's why we invest the way we invest in our budget, in our missions, in our outreach. We love local churches. So you can be a part of a family together to live out this thing called a Christian life. Because we always say at Waypoint Church, a Christian life, spiritual maturity, is a, not a one-person project, but it's a group project. Does that make sense? Not meant to do it by yourself. It's too hard. You're meant to do it together. You're meant to do it with brothers and sisters. And the way I like it here at Waypoint Church, I said this once in a sermon, and I didn't realize I said this, but I'll say it again because I kind of like that I said it. You get to be part here of our weird little church here and do this thing called life together because life is a weird thing. But we do it together. Amen? Amen? This morning, does this mic sound still off? Okay, somebody's working on it. <laughs> Thank you. This morning we return to the Gospel of Luke to pick up on the narrative of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 13. Notice in verse 22 that Luke specifically points out that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and that he's teaching in the cities and the villages as he passes through them. He's already told, twice told his disciples about the end point of this journey and how in Jerusalem he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified. The disciples have seemed not to comprehend what he's told them or not even want to comprehend it. But Jesus has set his path, his purpose, his journey is Jerusalem. And nothing will stop him from getting there. Nothing will get in his way of fulfilling the mission the Father has for him. Even when the Pharisees come and tell him, which is kind of funny that the Pharisees go and tell him that Herod is out to kill him, Jesus brushes them off. Not even the old fox, which I kind of like the fact that he called Herod a fox. I don't think he's meant in a good way. Herod the fox will stand in the way of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Jesus must be in Jerusalem by Passover in order to fulfill the prophecies concerning him. But he's not in a rush to get there. And he's traveling on his way there. He's stopping to take time in the population centers to teach and to preach and perform miracles. It's along this way, this setting, that someone asks him a question. As recorded in verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now why in the world do you think someone would ask him that question? I mean, if you have one question to ask Jesus as he's walking by, I don't know if that'd be the question. Will only some people be saved? You'd be more, maybe more specific, will I be saved? Or maybe along the lines of, hey, when's the world gonna end? When are you gonna bring forth your kingdom? You know, am I gonna win a million dollars? Who's my wife? Whatever, there's a million other questions you could ask. But why ask kind of a bummer question like that? Lord, are only a few people gonna be saved? It kind of changes the mood of the place, like, yay, life is good, wonderful, and then only a few people are gonna get saved? Well, how does this ask this question? Maybe this person was fishing for a compliment, asking this question in order to elicit a bit of praise from Jesus, you know, something like, well, it's not for you to know who's gonna get saved, but you know, you're in, because you're awesome. <laughs> Maybe this person was scared, they didn't have what it takes. Am I gonna get in? How many people? Is there a count? Maybe there's tickets. Maybe they're like worried about there's a certain number of tickets available to heaven and he wanted to make sure he got one. Or he wanted to make sure to tell others to get one quick while the supplies last. Not exactly sure of the motivation of the question. But Jesus answers 
by turning this question back upon the asker of the question. He says, instead of saying, um, everybody's gonna be saved, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, yes, only a few people will get saved. He doesn't say that either. He turns it back and says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do so. Not exactly the answer the person probably wanted to hear. And to be quite honest, not the answer most of us want to hear. Am I right? I, hear the, I think the answer probably wanted to hear, don't worry about how many you're in. Or maybe we want to hear something more along the lines of all, all will get in. Everyone who wants to go get in. Something more positive might feel a touch better, right? Instead, it sounds a little negative. That's a little harsher than maybe you're used to. So what's going on here? Elsewhere, Jesus does sound more positive at times, but also, he also sounds as negative as this at other times. Is Jesus confused? There is more to this question than just simple curiosity. Underlying it is a quest to understand the nature and the extent of Jesus' ministry in both a political and theological sense. In a political aspect, there was this common expectation that the Messiah would come to conquer and establish the nation of Israel to the glory and prestige and power it had under the kingdom of Israel. They thought that in terms of the many prophecies around the renewal of Israel and the kingdom that will last forever, often overlooking the prophecies of a Messiah that had to suffer. But now it's in the third year of Jesus' ministry and though at times there's large crowds would turn out to hear him and be healed by him, there didn't seem to be any political movement. So the followers of Jesus are thinking, hey, it's three years, bud. You're gathering a crowd. This is awesome. But come on, man, when are the swords coming out? When are the political rallies happening? When are we going to start moving towards kicking out Rome? In fact, according to John 6, when such an effort did arise, Jesus actually withdrew from it. So one aspect of this question then you have to understand was that what's the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was to establish? The political and theological expectations ran together with the belief that a national salvation will come with a national restoration. If Jesus was not restoring Israel as a nation, then what was his plan to save only a few or only save a few? The theological aspect is probably more in view here, especially in the context with Luke sets. In Luke 12, in the first part of chapter 13, we record a lot of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, and many warnings by Jesus to everyone about being ready for the coming of the Son of Man. This was contrary to the common idea that Jewish people would be saved because they were descendants of Abraham and if they followed the law. The extent of that salvation was debated since not everyone believed that they were wicked in light or some believed they were more righteous in light of the way they kept the law. And the question then of how righteous or, or how assured you are with salvation and the degree of your wickedness to keep you from salvation was prevalent. The teachings of Jesus was confusing to them. On the one hand, the parables of the mustard seed and leaven made it appear that many would be saved. On the other hand, the warnings for common people to repent who are not doing anything that appeared outwardly evil made it appear that few would be saved. 
See, this idea of salvation is core. These people were wondering, they're listening to Jesus to hear some of his messages, and they're speaking of, it seems like leaven that will go through and go through and affect the whole bread. That means a lot of people. It seems like salvation was a secure and insecure thing. They weren't sure because at that time, they're like, am I doing good enough? I'm a descendant of Abraham, so I'm a set-apart people. Yes, that's good. But then it says, keep the law. Am I keeping the law well enough? And so there's a common question about the nature of salvation. Am I saved? Now, the question of salvation, then, is what does it mean? What does salvation mean? Salvation from what? The same word can be used here, this idea of being saved, have very different meanings. But the particular word saved here, which we use, has a general meaning of to deliver from a direct threat to make safe and sound out of a difficult situation. So the context determines the threat or a difficult situation. So salvation from an enemy would be deliverance from their threat. Salvation from a storm would be deliverance from the injury and safety from the the effects of the storm. The ideas of theological salvation vary, but commonly it was understood then as deliverance from God's judgment both now and eternally. So regardless of what the man intended as his question, Jesus answered it directly to all the people present and concerns being made of a safe and sound eternity before God. His emphasis is upon doing everything you can to be sure that you are saved and will not be shut out of God's kingdom. So the idea then is this. Here's the question. What does it take then to be saved? That's the underlying question amongst who will be saved. How many will be saved? How can we know that we are saved. So Jesus answers, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do, will not be able to. We're to strive for salvation. Now before I talk about that we're to strive for salvation, let me caveat it with this. There are many scriptures that emphasize God's sovereignty in salvation. For example, John 6 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And Psalm 14, 1 through 3, is repeated in Romans 3.10 and says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The fact is God is sovereign over salvation. And without the extension of his love poured out in mercy to allow you to still be alive, his grace in sending Jesus to pay the redemption price and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to give you a new heart to believe, you cannot be saved from the consequences of sin. God's sovereignty and salvation is absolutely humbling to man, but that's precisely why so many people reject it. It interferes with their pride. But it's to the humble that the Lord extends his grace while he resists the proud. There are many passages also that emphasize man's responsibility in salvation. This is one of the passages Jesus states, this is the command voice. It's not an option. You must strive to enter through the narrow door. What door? The context is clear. This is a door into the kingdom of God, the door of eternal salvation. It's narrow. 
Similar to Matthew chapter 7, where it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. My people, contrary to popular belief, there is not many roads to heaven, and there are not many ways to God. There is one, and one only, and his way is Jesus. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. The apostle Peter boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ to the Sanhedrin that had arrested and they concluded, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. The specific command, make every effort to enter, is an imperative joined with an infinitive. The phrase, make every effort, is in the Greek, my Greek is terrible now, is agonizamai, from which we get our English word to agonize. The noun on which the verb is based originally refers to a place of contest, like a stadium, like it's just where you kind of put forth a conflict. The verb means to carry on a conflict, contest, debate, or a legal suit. When used metaphorically, as is in this passage, it compares to exercise of virtue in a moral way to physical exertion. What this means literally is to agonize, is to strive, is to make every effort, is to literally means to say you try as if you're going to try winning a battle. You, you strive as if you're running a marathon. Now here's this idea, when it comes to striving by the narrow door, what responsibility is given to humans for concerning salvation, it's not any sense of what you can do on your own that can earn salvation. The idea is that your best works are like filthy rags before God. The idea is if you've ever tried cleaning anything with a dirty rag, it doesn't work, right? You just get everything else dirtier. That's what we are. Paul states clearly in Titus 3, he saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So our salvation Our rescue comes from a sovereign God who chose us, loves us, but then we're called to strive to make every effort to enter, even even though he did all that it takes for us to enter. I'm confused. Let me put it this way, though. This isn't a perfect picture, but maybe it'll help. Gina and I have two boys, and they're awesome. Josiah and Hudson, love them. But they did nothing on their own to be a part of our family. We did the hard part, or in the case of Josiah, Gina did the hard part. They are our boys, and we love them so dearly and passionately. They did nothing to earn the status of being our beloved children. They didn't come out being able to like solve math equations and do chores around the house perfectly. Not at all. They did nothing to earn their status before us. But they are our beloved children. But not for them, through their calling is to walk in that identity. For them to daily choose to believe that they are beloved by us and choose to walk in the way of this family. I, like, I said that walk in the way. Gina and I have been watching The Mandalorian. And sometimes we'll look at each other off and be like, this is the way. This is the way. Specifically when it stuff comes to stuff with our family. You know, she's like, we do this this way, we do it this way. I'm like, she goes, this is the way. I'm like, fine, Gina, I'll put that away right now. And she's typically referring to like doing chores, like dishes. Like, we do dishes right after dinner. We don't wait. I'm like, she goes, this is the way. <laughs> and I'm like, this is our family way, okay. 
the idea is this. Now, this is not a perfect illustration, but the idea is this, is that this odd combination of God's sovereignty in choosing you. He did everything. There's nothing you did. He did all that is necessary for you to enter into salvation. Now, what's he saying then? How's he saying for you to strive? How's he saying for you to work? He's saying put every effort into you living out that salvation. He's saying, how can you know that you're saved? Well, you judge a tree by a tree. You judge it by, are you walking in the reality of that salvation? Strive to walk in it, to enter in. Strive to be a part. That's why our kids, I, I desire, my desire is for our kids to never look at me and say, I have to earn your love, Dad. That would be the worst thing. I don't want Hudson or Josiah to ever look at me and say, I have to earn your love. I want to know that they are loved. And because they're so radically loved, they're walking in the identity of being loved children, being my children. And they walk in the way. Often at that time, the way is Gina's way. But still, it's still a good way. <laughs> you see, the common problem we have with our faith is that most people think that salvation is a one-step idea. Step one, save from our sins. That's it. We're good. We're done. Salvation is done. But it's not it. This is step two. is we're being transformed into Christ's likeness. Do you hear me? Salvation is, yes, it's being forgiven of our sins. That's part of it. But we're forgiven, we're forgiven to walk in a new way. We're forgiven to be different people. We're forgiven to be instruments of redemption. Jesus is rescuing not only us from our sin once and for all, but transforming us from vessels of sin to instruments of redemption. He's calling us, like what he's doing to the world. He rescues the world from sin and he's transforming it into a new heavens and a new earth. That's our calling upon us. So this idea of striving is the second part of this, is entering in to this, this process of sanctification that God's called you to. Jesus gives us further grace in order that our lives should be transformed according to his way, his truth, and his life. Giving ever, but we have to want that transformation. We have to cooperate with his spirit, prompting us to change we need to dedicate ourselves to learning and doing the daily work of being his disciples, giving energy and effort to learning from how we are to live, then seeking with deliberate intent to put what we've learned into practice daily. Jesus is telling us to not take his grace for granted, but instead to grow in it daily. Now later on it goes, there's Luke 13, 24b and 25 says, because many, I tell you, will try to enter, will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. I want you to hear this. This is hard, but this is a limited opportunity. The imagery here could refer to several different situations, such as a man closing his door for the evening to go to bed. He's locking up, lights are off, he's going to bed, as described in Luke 11. Or the closing of a door at a wedding feast, as described in Matthew 25. The point is that you need to enter through the door before it's shut, before it's, the dead bolts are in place, before everybody's down for the night. They'll cry out for the door to be open, it will remain shut. And the door shuts in two major ways. I want you to hear this. The first one is when you die. The second one is when the day of the Lord happens, when he comes to judge. My people hear me very clearly. Judgment will happen. This is a limited opportunity to make decision on this side of that great day. And I implore you to take seriously the fact that one day, one day, it is true, it is inevitable, you will die. I have yet to meet a person, I have yet to hear of a person, I have yet to, other than, who is it? Let me, quick, quick, quick Bible trivia, two people who never died. 
And say that, who say that? Enoch and? That's correct. Good. You guys are such good Bible nerds. I love it. Reality is, God says our days are numbered. It's going to happen. As hard as it is to grasp, that's what I was talking about. I think when you're in your 20s, you don't think it's really possible. I mean, you, you know intellectually that it is, but you kind of like, you don't actually think of yourself as dying. In your 30s, I think you're often just so busy, you know, trying to like do life and stuff that you don't think about it. I think, I think often midlife is when it first starts hitting you like, oh, I'm going to die one day. And as you get older, you realize it's coming closer than you think. But the reality is this, it's true. Can I implore you that you have a limited opportunity in this life now to make a decision for eternity and to walk in a way that is worth so much more, a significance of eternal purpose. That's what this passage is saying. Jesus is reminding you that Today could be your day of salvation. Today could be the day that you repent and you accept the free gift of love. Today could change everything for the rest of eternity for you if you don't know forgiveness and redemption. Today could be that day for you. 13, 26, 27 says, knowing versus following the Lord. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets, but he will reply, I don't know you, where you come from, away from me, all you evildoers. For me, these verses seem to refer to the tragic idea of people who think they may know Jesus, but don't really trust and follow him. In our culture, it would seem to refer to many people who may have attended church or call themselves cultural Christians, but don't actually have a relationship with Jesus. They know of him, they've heard of him, but they don't they don't follow him. You see, the striving to enter is a part of a show that you have a relationship with Jesus. It is the fruit of the relationship. It doesn't make the relationship happen. It happens when a relationship exists. When a true relationship exists, you truly follow. Then Luke 13, 28 through 39 says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and the west and north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first will be last. This weeping and gnashing of teeth connote grief and rage. The idea that for those who think salvation is theirs because they are descendants of Abraham will be grieving. They're called to live through Jesus and have transformed lives. The reference to people coming from four points of the compass to be part of God's kingdom is to the Gentiles from around the world that are included. Such hope for the Gentiles was included in the third aspect of God's covenant with Abraham, in him, that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed and repeated throughout all of the scriptures by multiple prophets. But many still thought that salvation was only for the, themselves, for the Jewish people. And this was a rebuke and a warning to them. Gentiles will be included in having fellowship with God. Now, usually the phrase, the first will be last and last shall be first, refers to the equality of the outcome. And it does that here as well, but it's slightly modified with its context to refer to the Gentiles who receive the gospel last, still being included in the kingdom. This idea then is that to the people, the Jewish people who are listening, who are hearing to what Jesus is saying, he's saying to them, don't miss out on this. Don't miss out your patriarchs 
your ancestors are there on the kingdom. You don't miss out on this because there'll be grief for you. But this message is going to all peoples, all nations, from every part of the world, every Gentile. You and me are part of this because the message went forth. And it doesn't matter that they're last or last to hear or first to hear. You're part of the kingdom. Then Jesus closes this section with a lament over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I can feel the longing in these words. Jesus is going, he's going to Jerusalem to face his death. He knows he's about to suffer, but his longing, his longing was for his people. And I love the image here, is a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus is calling himself the mother hen here. He's longing for his children to know who they are. This is the striving that I'm talking about, the striving of a chick taking refuge under the wings of their mother. When I was a kid, and I bet you many of you guys could attest to this, but when I was a kid, my mother could fix anything that was wrong in the world. You got a boo-boo? Mom could make it better. All right, if you were hungry, mom could make it better. If you were late in your homework assignment in art class and you were terrible at art and you're gonna get a failing grade, mom could make it better. <laughs> That's not a true story. <laughs> if I was scared, mom could make it better. If I was sad, your mom's hugs always made you happy. The striving that I was called to as a child was to know that I could always go to her arms and find peace and comfort there. Then I was brave enough to face whatever happens because my mom would be my refuge. My people, the striving Jesus is calling you to is a striving of taking refuge and knowing who you are. He says, strive to enter in, work hard, and, and put forth every effort to know that who you are is a beloved child. Your identity is a beloved child of mine. So take refuge in my arms, come running to my arms. He's saying the door is near, but he opens it for you. He says, take comfort in his arms, rest in his love. Strive to live like your beloved, transformed people. Live like you are in the arms of your dear Savior. He wants to take you in like a mother hen. Will you live in that reality? I know the message sounds a little different. Most of you guys are used to hearing, strive to read the Bible more. Strive to pray more. Strive to do more work. And those are all amazing things, I get it. But those things happen when you strive to be a beloved child. When you choose to enter into your reality that says, I cut. I have nowhere else to go but to your arms. I have no other refuge to lean on. I have no other place to feel safe, but there I am known. There I am loved. There I am accepted. There I have purpose, so that I'm gonna live there. And so that's choosing daily to live there. That's choosing when the world distracts you with everything else, when, 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 when your work is terrible and your life is hard and your kids are miserable. You choose to live there. 
when things seem to go bad, when you don't feel like you have much worth, you choose to strive to live there and you enter that door. He says, my Jesus has forgiven me. My Jesus has wiped away everything. My Jesus has cleansed me. He's given me a new heart. My Jesus has me in his arms. I'm beloved. I'm adored. I am known. I'm safe. I'm in my Savior's arms, and I choose to live there. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for that kind of love. We know the door is narrow. We know the way is small. God, but we know Jesus opened it. We know Jesus made the way. And so we walk in confidence knowing that he forgives our sins, gives us a new heart that we can rest in his arms. We strive to enter that identity and that reality every day. We thank you for it. So may we live like beloved people. May we rest in Jesus' arms. In his name that we pray, amen.